After marking hymn number 58, certainly let us continue to express appreciation to God who has so wonderfully blessed us to be able to gather today as this first day of another week is now before us and the opportunities, the privileges and possibilities that are now before us as well. Truly, what better way could we have to follow His commandment and to bring worship and honor and adoration unto Him this day? We again has, has already been noted or blessed with a membership in terms of some who have been ill and are able to be back with us, others who still are not able to be so, and perhaps certainly let us continue to think of them, and our visitors who come our way today. We're thankful for your presence and hope that soon you'll have opportunity to be back with us again. As we desire to simply be that which the New Testament describes for the church, our interest is not to do that which man desires, what various creeds or other issues of the human family may choose to be desirous. Our goal is simply to be nothing more, nothing less than what the scriptures describe of the first century church. And today as we ask a, about a lesson entitled Anger, as you can see on the wall to my left, let us give some thought through the concourse of the lesson this morning about some of the things contained in the scriptures relative to that subject. And I suspect all of us can certainly appreciate how timely a subject anger can be. Perhaps each of us from time to time find ourselves welling up with anger, perhaps responding to situations or events in ways that later we will come to wish we had not done. It would be my hope this morning that we might well begin our lesson with some of these introductory thoughts and then perhaps move to some more directed questions relative to this subject. As you can see on that particular slide, and it is no revelation at all, anger is a fairly common thing, isn't it? How often do you and I experience that emotion and in fact react to something in anger? As we perhaps oftentimes do that, might we not forget that anger is as well a Bible topic? It's not as though the Bible does not discuss it at all. Not only do we appreciate it from our own feelings and responses and emotions, God also discusses it. Some 234 times in the King James Bible, we find the word anger appearing. And in fact, we find the word angry, the adjective form of it, additionally some 44 times. That brings, of course, the total of some 278 occurrences, and that doesn't, in fact, count various and sundry things that relate to it, such as wrath or malice or other so-called terms. Those numbers alone indicate this is a Bible subject, and God has much to say about anger, how one should attempt to deal with it, and in fact, the status that this emotion has. There at the bottom of that slide, let me propose some of the things more directly that I wish us to consider today. Is anger wrong? Is it sinful to be angry? If it is, then in what way should you and I find the teachings of the Bible to help us to overcome those feelings? On the other hand, if anger is not wrong, if it thus is not a sin, what else does the Bible say about it? How should it be controlled and how should it be expressed? In short, what does the Bible say about anger? As we give some thought and some attention to the proclamations of the Scriptures on that point, I hope that you'll take your Bible as we look at various passages and see what God has to say about being angry. May I submit that let's look at some five brief lessons in the time that we have this morning. The first one is merely what we have already at least touched upon. It has to do with the commonality of anger. 
I mentioned again some 278 occurrences in the scriptures of the words angry or anger. Let's look at just a small sampling of those instances and learn a rather valuable lesson. First of all, anger is a common thing, isn't it? Each of us, no doubt, has experienced that many occasions, at least if you're very old. We know a little bit about the easy way in which one can become angry. Let us consider just a few passages that tell us some of those situations when Bible characters became angry, and in so doing, that may prepare us to perhaps face a situation and not be overwhelmed or overcome by anger, perhaps as they were. First, a definition. Anger, as you can well tell with me, involves hostile feelings because of opposition or because of feelings of being hurt. Consider these examples, these manifestations of that very idea. First of all, it's exceedingly possible for a person to become angry in response to another person's irrationality or another person's acting in a way that you consider illogical or another person's acting in a way that may in fact appear to be somewhat foolish or somewhat less than what the evidence would suggest. Consider these two examples. In Exodus 32, 19, we find on that occasion as Moses descended Mount Sinai and he witnessed the children of Israel dancing around this golden calf, he, in fact, the scripture says, waxed hot with anger, threw down the tables of stone in that anger. We notice Moses was enraged by the way in which the Israelites were acting. They were behaving in this fashion that was exactly opposite to the first two commandments. Moses' anger boiled within him. Consider that other example in 1 Samuel 17, 28. Here, Mo, uh, David's older brother, Eliab, chastised his brother David, and in anger he did so because David had the audacity to think that he could defeat the Philistine giant named Goliath. It was David who was asking questions, why have none of you gone out to fight this man? For the God of Israel is with you. Eliab was angry. He couldn't understand David's perspective because Eliab was fearful. He wasn't going to go fight Goliath. Those two examples again highlight that that's one of the means that can sometimes prompt our anger when someone behaves in a way that uh, to us doesn't appear to be wise. That may prompt anger within us. But perhaps in the second case, there are times when we sense an impropriety. Someone is taking advantage of us or somebody else or perhaps in another way is wronging us or someone else and we become angry because of it. There are examples in the scriptures of the same. I again have listed two in Judges 14, 19. We find Samson became angry for that very reason when on that occasion we remember that these people to whom he had told a riddle got the answer to the riddle in a way that was not proper and Samson became angry. Later we also appreciate in 2 Samuel 12 verse 5 perhaps a well-known example on that occasion, David became very angry. He had just committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had had her husband Uriah killed. Nathan the prophet came to him and told him a very touching and compelling story about a wealthy man who took the single ewe lamb of a poor man. 
David's anger waxed hot and burned within him, and David just couldn't understand how this wealthy man could take the only lamb that the poor man had. It was on that occasion that Nathan said, You are the man. Thou art the man, David. And we see again David's anger as it was expressed on that occasion. Maybe another instance. When somebody else doesn't act or behave or conduct themselves in the way that we think they should, sometimes that can make us angry. Consider these Bible examples, if you would. In Numbers 24.10, we find the Moabite king named Balak became enraged in anger because Balaam didn't curse the children of Israel as he asked him to do. In fact, Balaam blessed them. Balak, it says smote his hands together and in fact in such anger on that occasion. You see, this is another example we can each understand that can certainly make one angry. In Esther 1 verse 12, when King Ahasuerus demanded that Vashti come before and dance and she refused, he became angry. When someone else doesn't do what we think they should or what we expect that they would do, we may well respond in anger. Notice the last two with me briefly, if you would. It's also possible that we might react in anger when things do not go as we would expect them to go. Didn't Balaam, that same gentleman I mentioned a moment ago, become greatly angered when his donkey didn't do what he thought she should do? In fact, he smote her, hit her on many occasions, and ultimately the donkey was smarter than Balaam was. But she didn't do what Balaam thought she should. He became angry. Notice also in Jonah 4 verse 1, when God pardoned the city of Nineveh, spared it, and in fact did not in fact overthrow it on that occasion, Jonah became angry, exceedingly so. Anger, you see, is a commonly occurring theme in the Bible, and as if these weren't enough, sometimes jealousy can lead to anger. In Luke, the 15th chapter, we find on that occasion the elder brother, the younger brother in that record, the prodigal son, the elder brother in jealousy over the attention that the younger brother was getting, we find he too exhibited a bit of anger. All of these things point out anger is a common matter. It may well be we didn't need a great deal of reminding of it, but it is powerful to notice the scriptures so often speak of it. And as we contemplate the nature of that anger in our lives, let's move to some further points and ask some rather dramatic questions. Is anger sinful? Is it wrong to be angry? Perhaps we can answer that question by making two rather direct notes. First of all, among those 278 occurrences of the words anger or angry in the Bible, a large, large number of them refer to the fact that God was angry. Yes, the great, almighty Jehovah God of heaven on those instances, and very many of them, in fact, became angry. It would certainly thus seem to be the case that if God became angry, it must not be sinful because God doesn't sin. It's impossible for Him to do so, as we learn in James chapter 1. But notice, in addition to that, I've given you, at least listed some specific examples in Numbers 11, verse 1, the text says, God became greatly angered because the children of Israel murmured and complained. He was leading them through the wilderness of sin to the chosen land of promise. 
They murmured and complained on numerous occasions, and the text says God became angry. Perhaps furthermore, we notice in Numbers 32, 13, we notice there that in their leading them, th He is leading them through that wilderness. Remember, they came to the occasion, to the time, when the promised land was directly before them. Spies were sent into the land, and of the twelve that were sent, ten of them came back and said, This is the land, but we are unable to take it. We are as grasshoppers before those giants. Due to their unbelief, it says, God became angry. Furthermore, might we appreciate in Joshua 7, verse 1, when there was sin in the camp, the children of Israel had understood great victory at Jericho, and yet they had done the thing that was not to be done. They had stolen some of the articles. It was the sin of Achan, and God became angry. Perhaps in the final notice of those opening passages, God became angry at Solomon, the very son of David. When Solomon turned his attention to a whole host of various women, and he proceeded to aid them in worshiping many false gods, God became angry. As if it's not enough to notice that God became angry, notice also Jesus. Did Jesus, while living here in the flesh, ever become angry? Yes, he did. Perhaps we might begin by noting in Mark 3, verse 5, on an occasion when a man with a withered hand came before him, before Jesus healed that man, he asked a question, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And the Pharisees that were there would not answer. The Lord knew the thoughts of their heart, but they wouldn't say a word. The text says Jesus became angry. We notice furthermore in John the second chapter, rather early in his ministry, Jesus, as he came into Jerusalem, found that the temple was being used to sell various and sundry animals. There were tables in which money changers were set up. The Lord made a whip, a scourge if he please, drove out the animals and the money changers, turned over the tables. Jesus was frustrated and angry because, you see, they were making what ought to have been the house of prayer into a den of thieves. In Matthew 21, very late in his ministry, he did the same thing again. Even Jesus became angry because of the text in Hebrews 4.15 which says that we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. If the Lord became angry, but yet He never sinned, that must imply directly that sin, or that being angry by itself is not a sin. Being angry by itself is not wrong. In fact, I would ask you to notice quickly, though, that in that rather famous text of Ephesians 4.26, we have the very idea that gets us to the core of the matter. The inspired apostle said, Be ye angry and sin not. He made a clear distinction between being angry on the one hand and sinning on the other. Be ye angry, he wrote, and sin not. It is possible thus to be angry, but yet to not allow that to result in sin. Isn't it amazing to note that distinction? So we've answered that initial question, is it wrong to be angry? No, it's not. However, it is possible for that anger to lead to that which does become wrong. It's possible for that anger to lead to sin. In fact, perhaps we might use much of the rest of our lesson 
to remind ourselves about that fact and also some lessons from the Bible that you and I can use to not fall into that trap. Be ye angry and sin not. We again perhaps can understand that if it hasn't happened to us, we likely have seen it in someone else. That this person becomes so angry, so enraged that they begin to say things that they should not say. They begin to do things that they should not do. Perhaps in doing those things and saying those things, they hurt someone else irreparably. They, in fact, tarnish and mar a relationship that can never again be as full and as rich as it once was. It is possible for that anger to lead us to act in ways that God has condemned. Near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice a number of passages, mostly from the book of Proverbs, that challenge us in that very way. For instance, in regard to the danger associated with a state of anger, and I use that word rather carefully. When a person has flown off the handle, as the old saying goes, his or her anger has led them into a state where they may not be fully understanding but by clear thinking of what they're doing. It's at that point they can do things that can be harmful. They can say things that can be so terribly hurtful. And they can act in ways that are very shameful and disgraceful as well. In Proverbs 22, verse 24, we thus on that occasion read some very good advice with regard to anger. In terms of choosing our friends, the Proverbs writer says, Don't choose those that are angry. Those who are known for being so angry so often. Because after all, their anger can turn and harm or damage or in, so, in fact hurt your reputation. Make no friend with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Again, the reading of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four. We also notice in the same book, in Proverbs 29, 22, we notice that there, in terms of anger, what difficulty it can raise because it causes strife in so many instances. When individuals become so angry at one another and things are said, have you known of instances where never again are they able to forget what was said? Strife reared its ugly head and it tarnished what was and could have remained a very friendly relationship and a good relationship that allowed productivity. When they became angry, lost sight of what was being said, how much damage could well have been done? In addition to those two in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9, we notice there the rather direct command, Be not hasty and of a hasty spirit to be angry. You and I thus are directly commanded, don't allow yourself to be a person quickly to re rise in anger to a situation. Now notice again, he is talking about that kind of anger that produces sinful behavior. Don't allow that to quickly occur. Don't be hasty to allow yourself to become so angry. That is a rather interesting piece of advice for the world in which we live, isn't it? So often we are told, don't restrain yourself. If you feel like it, do it. If it comes to your mind, say it. God says just the opposite. You and I are to have sufficient control over ourselves not to allow our anger to result in sin. We are to have sufficient self-control so that that anger when it righteously occurs, does not lead into that which is sinful. That illustrates the power that God has 
in mind for us. He has made us agents that can control that anger. It is futile for us to say, I can't help it. I can help it, and so can you. The sin does not have to lead, or the anger does not have to lead into sin. If it does so, it's because we allowed it to happen. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. The words of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Perhaps as we move near the lower part of that slide, the Proverbs writer again has some other things to help us appreciate the carefulness with which we should think about anger. We notice especially we are told to control ourselves. Note the wording of Proverbs 14 verse 17 and how that that person who is so quick to anger is not complimented. Now, we've learned that anger by itself isn't wrong, and there are times when things are done that should lead to our anger, but we should never allow it to result in sin, never allowing it to reach the point in which we say and do that which is condemned by God. You'll furthermore appreciate a third lesson. So far, we've learned it's not wrong to be angry, but anger can lead to sin. Here's yet another lesson that we might well need to put deeply within our heart. There are a number of passages in the New Testament that speak so clearly to us about putting away that improper anger. And that phrase, put away, means to remove it from you. It has no place in your life and in mine. We might well begin in Psalm 37, verse 8. In that ancient day, we notice that the psalmist so powerfully and mightily affirm about putting anger away, separating oneself from it. Notice how clearly that statement is therein made. I mentioned a New Testament passage, and it is to that one that I would direct your attention. Since we live beneath this New Testament era, this New Testament, notice what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.31. As he wrote to those individuals, he directly said, Put away all malice, all evil speaking, all clamor, all bitterness, and all anger. It is to be put away from those folks in Ephesus, and by inspiration it is to be put away from you and from me as well. Put that away, he wrote. So just as surely as we, our mouths ought not be used for evil speaking, we ought to have control and to put away that improper, that undue anger from our lives. In Colossians 3, verses 7 and 8, on that occasion, the language is stated a little bit differently. It's stated in terms of putting something to death. Mortify is the actual verb that's there. He said, mortify anger. When something is dead, we know it's no longer a part of that which is directly of you and of me. It has been put aside. We're separated from it. He said, you put to death anger. So on the one hand, Paul told the Ephesians that. In that book, he told the Colossians the same. We're thus reminded of the seriousness of anger. Isn't it true from both of those passages that anger keeps some very poor company? Perhaps you and I have heard our parents say something to us to be careful the company you keep because after all, they can influence you to do that which is wrong and bad. 
Isn't that what Paul affirmed as well in 1 Corinthians 15, 33? Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Notice the company that anger keeps. Malice, wrath, bitterness, malice, evil speaking. All of that is in the same list with anger. No wonder we should be very careful and strive to work with earnestness to control the anger that can sometimes occur within us that can lead to that which is so bad. In the King James translation, one final passage in Colossians 3.21, warned fathers especially, do not provoke your children to anger lest they be discouraged. We as parents need to be consistent with our children, not saying one thing, doing something else before them. If we do that, that's inconsistently. They don't know then which one's the proper course. And quite often that can produce an attitude of disconcertedness and even anger. We each should thus strive in our families and in other walks in our life to exhibit control over that anger so that it's not an improper matter at all. So far in these three lessons, we have learned a great deal about anger, most of it in light of the fact of its commonness, but also in the urging of us to control it. There is one additional text that I wish just to consider in some detail. It was the lesson text read earlier today. It was the one found in Matthew 5, verse 22, and it is to that one that I would direct your attention as we close our lesson in the final moments this morning. What did Jesus have to say about anger? Perhaps among the passages found in the Sermon on the Mount, this one rings as clearly in our mind as many others. Let's again read verse 22 of Matthew 5 and set before us the teaching of this passage. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. It's very clear that the word angry is in that passage, and thus it has something to do with what the Lord was teaching. What did Jesus teach here about anger? You'll notice three specific presentations are made. The one, angry without a cause. The second one, to say Rekha. The third, to say thou fool. And the punishment that seemed to follow each one was correspondingly greater with each passing element. What did Jesus teach here about anger? I would submit to you that by the time we close the brief discussion of that verse, I think we'll be reminded of how seriousness, indeed, the subject of anger really is. To begin that discussion, you might well notice the paragraph actually starts in verse 21. And thus, thus, to not jump in in the midst of it, verse 21 says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. In, this, in the midst of this part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was highlighting the distinction between that which was the case beneath the old Mosaic Code, the law of Moses, and that which was the case beneath the gospel ministration. This law, this new system that he shortly was to reign in with majesty and power by his death at Calvary. You'll notice he began by reminding them, You've heard that it was said, Thou shalt not kill. Notice what else is in that same verse. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Now the sixth of the Ten Commandments 
had directly said, Thou shalt not kill. There was no continuation about saying, Whoever does shall be in danger of the judgment. The God had said, Thou shalt not kill. And reiterated verbatim in Deuteronomy 5. You'll notice that the Lord, though, included an additional statement. And he also indicates to us the source from which that additional statement was made. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. God had said, Thou shalt not kill. But the rabbis through the centuries and the various scribes who interpreted added that second part. They had added to that statement God had made this business about whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That's the reason the Lord said, Ye have heard that it was said. You'll notice the punishment, though, to go with what the scribes and other teachers had asserted, danger of the judgment. The reason that's significant is because that's one of the same punishments mentioned in verse 22. With that as a background, let's turn our attention more explicitly to verse 22. And you'll notice Jesus begins it by saying, Though you've heard that it was said, I say unto you, Listen now to what shall be the matter beneath the gospel, this era. I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Same punishment as was listed in verse 21. There it was, thou shalt not kill. Here it's whoever is angry with his brother. You'll notice the Lord has heightened significantly the thrust and power and also the meaning behind one's dealing with one's brother. Whoever is angry with his brother. I might ask you to notice in the oldest manuscripts that phrase without a cause is not in the Greek. It literally reads that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Oh, uh, much newer manuscripts are the ones who've added that without a cause. It is in light of that thought, I would ask you to notice that the old law of Moses really didn't do a great deal of governing of the heart. Thou shalt not kill. It would have been entirely possible for a person to hate another with all the fervor of his being, and yet as long as he never actually killed him, he would not have violated that sixth commandment. You see, the law of Moses didn't touch so often upon the expressions of the thoughts and feelings of the heart. You'll notice that's the powerful extension Jesus made here. You've heard it said you shouldn't kill, but I'm telling you, if you're angry with your brother, you're in danger of the judgment. Now, what judgment was it to which he was referring? That was the judgment under the tribunals, courts, and councils of that particular day. We read in Exodus 18 about the appointing of judges who were to rule over the children of Israel. And notice that given law concerning the thou shalt not kill was given two chapters later. That particular judgment was a court sentenced by those Jews, and they could thus arraign or in fact make statements of punishment to those who act in a public way in regard to excessive anger. For that reason, Jesus said, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. The Lord heightened that teaching of anger greatly, didn't he? But he isn't anywhere close to being finished. For he next went on to say, Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. Rekha? An interesting statement, isn't it? R-A-C-A, -A, that was an Aramaic term 
and as you can see on the screen there at the bottom, it was a rather strong derogatory term to another person. It would be something like saying to them, you senseless, empty-headed man, you numbskull, or as you can also see, you blockhead. Again, in the Aramaic, that was a statement that in fact was a bit stronger. Let's put thing, the two things we've seen together. Angry with his brother, notice that was a sensation, an emotion, a reaction, a feeling of the heart. Nothing perhaps was ever said. Notice this one. What if to the one who actually says Reka? Here that anger has gone a step beyond. It has now expressed itself in this word that is being spoken to someone else. Reka, you numbskull, you blockhead, you senseless man. And you'll notice in this instance what's the punishment that went with this heightened consideration of anger. He says you'll be in danger of the council. That's the translation of the Greek word Sanhedrin. In other words, you will be arraigned and perhaps brought before that Jewish council of 70 individuals, the Sanhedrin court, if you say this word, if you respond to another by using language like that. Notice again how that reaffirms lessons we've learned already today. We should not then in our anger allow our language to express things of insult, demeaning, besmirching another. No reason or anger should we allow it to go that far. We can certainly dialogue with someone. We can certainly attempt to explain our position on a matter. But never should our anger lead us to call names, to besmirch, demean, insult, degrade, harm their reputation and other matters like that. The Lord never did that, did he? In Matthew 23, for sure, he called them hypocrites. He stated the fact of the matter, and you and I would be perfectly in light of doing that. But Jesus didn't call them names. He didn't resort to that kind of low behavior, did he? On other occasions, when he likened them to a brood of vipers, when he likened them to various activities that described their sneakery and the way in which they were always attempting to tempt him, Notice, we must be very cautious in how we allow our anger to express itself in our language. Those two have taken us to the last one. For there is yet a third element, a third heightened appreciation of anger. Whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Whosoever shall say, thou fool. Notice again, the anger has responded in a statement. Something was said. And in this case, it wasn't Rekha, it was thou fool. And the Bible uses the word fool in two different ways. One, just as that person who refuses to observe the evidence and draw the proper conclusion. However, there's another way in which, and that's the way it's used here, thou fool. It is a statement of judgment. When you in anger respond in such a way you condemn somebody, in the sense of not a condemnation falling from the Word of God, a personal statement of open condemnation. Think about many of the terrible profanity kind of words that we hear in our society. A person in anger seems to respond with these kinds of words that condemn somebody else, using the word damn or other forms of the word condemn. That directly falls beneath the heading of this last part of Matthew 5.22. 
to condemn someone. Notice that condemnation in its sentence rests only with God. God knows the heart, not you and I. And furthermore, it is God who has given all judgment to the Son, John 5, 22. It doesn't rest with you and with me. It is to be noted this anger. Thus, in this passage, Jesus has described an increasing hierarchy. Angry, having those murderous thoughts in one's mind, to have hateful thoughts and dispositions toward another, Jesus said, that's not right. And later, John affirmed in 1 John 3, 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. If you and I hate somebody, we in fact wish that they weren't here. We have allowed our disposition toward them to be that degree of hatred. The Bible calls us a murderer. This passage condemns that kind of thinking. We ought not thus hate someone like that. The Bible commands we love even our enemies. It may be then this morning as we think about the closing portion of this lesson text, it might well be fair to summarize the lesson in words like this. Anger, it certainly is common, even in fact natural to appreciate. We did learn that it's not sinful by itself, but it can lead to sin. And we so powerfully noted that we should put away improper anger from us. And then finally, we noticed the Lord's warnings in Matthew 5, 22. To ever watch our anger, it should not produce language that besmirches or insults another by calling them names. And furthermore, we shouldn't allow that anger to dwell up to the point of being a hatred toward another, for that makes me a murderer. And finally, we've noticed that we'll be in danger of the Gehenna of hell, hell fire. That is the everlasting abode of the, un of the unrighteous, of the wicked. If we go to the point of trying to put ourselves in a place of condemning others in anger, we align ourselves with the devil himself. This morning, what about anger? We've learned the Bible has much to say. May we use it profitably and strive to control our anger in the proper ways and to ever have the disposition that Jesus would find pleasing and acceptable in us. This morning, are you a New Testament Christian? Have you had your sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb? If you have not done that, that can be accomplished only in the initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. We read that in Mark 16, verse 16. Furthermore, repent of your sins, Acts 2.38. Confess the name of Jesus in a public way before others, as we read of in Romans 10, verse 10, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Upon so doing, Christ will add you to His church. If you have done that, and you've known the glory of it, but have not been faithful to it, come back to your first love today, Revelation 2.5. All that needs to be done is for you to repent of those errors and sins, confess them, and we can pray on your behalf, and God will forgive them. If we could be of assistance to you today in either of those ways, wouldn't you let that be made known while together we stand and while we sing?